I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hi, this is Newt. Due to the virus, I'm recording from home. So you may notice a difference in audio quality. On this episode of Newt's World... The U.S. federal government and prosecutors have ramped up scrutiny into the Chinese government's influence buying and espionage operations on American campuses. Millions and millions of dollars have been donated to U.S. universities from China and the Chinese Communist Party. Many of the Chinese contributions were listed as coming from, quote, anonymous donors. A practice experts say is an easy tactic that allows the Chinese to penetrate the U.S. education system. The issue of Chinese investment in U.S. universities and the lack of transparency is alarming. I'm pleased to welcome my guest, Andrew Lelling, U.S. Attorney for the District of Massachusetts. Andy Lelling is one of five U.S. attorneys leading the initiative, which began in November 2018. This effort, which aims to blunt China's effort to improperly acquire cutting-edge technology, has focused on what the Department of Justice calls non-traditional collaborators. The vast majority of cases that prosecutors are examining involve scientists working in the high-tech industry or in academia. It's a great honor to have you share with us in real time, what's actually happening as you're investigating what has turned out to be, I think, a much bigger challenge than people thought. So could you start and tell us about the kind of investments you're seeing China make, for example, in Massachusetts-based schools? 
First, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. We've known for years and years that the Chinese have made a concerted effort to invest in U.S. universities. That investment takes on a few different forms. There's pure dollars, which is in the tens of millions of dollars for most major universities, and here that includes Harvard and MIT. But you see the Chinese do this in other ways. There's the collaboration between the Chinese and U.S. academics, which has become our focus at the Justice Department, among other things. And you also see things like the Confucius Institutes, which are a very interesting phenomenon where the Chinese set up cultural centers at major universities, funnel large amounts of money into them in an effort to broadcast China's preferred message on U.S. campuses and undertake other activities that I think is a matter of policy we should find questionable. This has been going on for years and years. I used to say that China is the biggest national security threat that no one talks about. Now we do because of COVID and because of this administration's focus on sort of balancing the ledger with China. But it took a long time to catch up to that viewpoint. So, for example, as I understand it, according to studentaid.gov, between 2014 and 2019, Harvard reported 12 contracts from China totaling over $11 million and 10 gifts totaling $64 million. In addition, Harvard created the Harvard China Fund in 2006. How do you see that affecting our relationship with China? I think what happens is that the more money is invested by China in these schools, the closer the relationship becomes. And as we see every day on the prosecution side, the more money there is, the more corrupting influence that you can expect. Meaning Harvard, is, for example, is a major institution, obviously has its own interests and is a sophisticated institution. But the more money you're receiving from one source, the more it's going to impact how much or how little you are willing to be critical of that source. So I thought a great step a few months ago was from the Department of Education which decided to dust off a provision of the Higher Education Act that requires universities to report publicly, annually, when they receive more than $250,000 from a particular foreign source. And you want to know that information as an American. You want to know whether enough money is pouring into one of your schools that their policy decisions might be influenced by a foreign power. I got a briefing recently by the Department of Education team that's doing this. I was amazed at the hostility of the universities and their unwillingness to follow the law. I mean, just flat out saying that these things are all proprietary and confidential, and no, we're not going to give you the information. We've noticed the same thing. And in fact, I've spoken to the Department of Education about this because they wanted to know what our appetite was for enforcing the Higher Education Act in court if it came to it. And we assured them that we would do that. The schools do not want to release this information. And what it touches on is something I've noticed often in this area, which is that there's a tremendous cultural gap between academia and federal law enforcement, which sounds obvious to say, but it becomes a problem in this context. We try and do a lot of outreach to these major universities so that they see we're not just a bunch of jackbooted thugs and we actually do take a nuanced approach to this kind of enforcement. And you see in these meetings, which are fruitful, but you see in these meetings that there's a tremendous amount of suspicion on the part of academia when it comes to dealing with the federal government, and frankly, especially when the federal government is in the hands of a Republican administration. One of the things they said to us was that 
It's amazing the amount of money these universities want to spend on very high-powered lawyers trying to block people from learning where their money's coming from. I was just a little surprised at the kind of hostility towards the idea of even sharing with the public things which Congress on a bipartisan basis had passed a bill requiring. I agree. And I'll use the word hostility. I've encountered actual hostility. That provision in the Higher Education Act is kind of interesting. I think it was passed in the 70s when the concern was OPEC money, when Middle Eastern Arab states were pouring money into U.S. universities. I think that's what originally prompted passing that part of the law. But it serves the same use today, which is it's in the public interest to know if a foreign power is pouring a large amount of money into your local prominent university. As I understand it, the president of Harvard meeting with Xi Jinping and the university then withdrawing an invitation to Dong Biao, who's a Chinese dissident and human rights lawyer. So in effect, after all this talk about academic freedom, Harvard basically kowtowed to the Chinese government and agreed that in return for being able to meet with Xi Jinping, they would block this guy from giving a speech, which was a speech, ironically, on Communist Party human rights violations. That's one of the things I find so clever about the approach that the Chinese take. China is a closed society. We are an open society. And China has found clever ways to extend its influence here. And that's why those Confucius Institutes I mentioned earlier, I think, are interesting. These sort of cultural centers based in major American universities that China uses to extend its influence here and impact speech here in the United States, which I think is kind of amazing. In fact, there's a great report by Senator Portman about this phenomenon that came out a few months ago, and it's pretty disturbing. And so this use of soft power by the Chinese has a direct impact here. So in addition, though, the Chinese are just straight out bribing people to steal secrets and to provide them with proprietary information. The Justice Department announced recently the arrest of a Harvard University professor. I suspect this was your office, since it's in Massachusetts. This was a guy who had received over $15 million in National Institute of Health and Department of Defense grants, who did not tell anybody that he was very closely associated with the Chinese government program, which ironically is designed to recruit foreign scientists and reward individuals for stealing proprietary information. That's almost surreal to imagine that you've got a tenured professor in a place like Harvard who is signing a deal to get money from the Chinese in a program which explicitly is asking people to steal proprietary information. What I find remarkable about it is that the Chinese plan to do this, and it is an elaborate plan, this Thousand Talents plan, is brilliant in its simplicity. All the Chinese need to do is come here and offer to engage in research partnerships with American academics, which is entirely legal, invite them to participate in research in China, which is entirely legal, and then collect up the benefits. The Chinese are extremely methodical in this context. What they do is they figure out their own strategic technological gaps, and they go find an academic in the United States who can fill that gap. And so it is not a coincidence that Dr. Lieber, who's the professor in the case that you're talking about, is a world-renowned scientist in the area of nanotechnology. This is not a coincidence that he was offered a tremendous amount of money by the Chinese to engage in a research partnership with them in which they can collect up his know-how and use it for Chinese purposes. And the Chinese do this nationwide, meaning in the United States, and they've done it for years and years. 
as alleged in our charging documents with Dr. Lieber, the mistake he made, ironically, was not necessarily collaborating with the Chinese. There are policy problems there, but it's not on its face illegal. He's alleged to have lied about it to federal authorities. And we're seeing that a lot nationwide. It's changing now. But many, many academics, when confronted with the question of, are you collaborating with the Chinese, have chosen to hide it from U.S. authorities, which makes us question what is going on in those relationships and how much influence is China really having over these academics. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine tingling shows on AE Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Zhao Song Sheng, who is a Harvard-affiliated cancer researcher, actually was trying to leave the country with 21 vials of cells that have been stolen from a laboratory at Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital. That's pretty blatantly outright, it seems to me. Yes. He is one of three cases. We charged the Harvard professor case and this Zhao Shang Zheng case and a third one involving a woman named Yang King Yi at the same time. And one of the reasons why we did that was to show the breadth of this conduct. The Lieber case involves a Harvard professor collaborating with the Chinese and being paid huge amounts of money to do so. The Zhang case, which you just mentioned, is a researcher working at a major medical center on cancer research in Boston who takes 21 vials of biological material related to his research, tries to smuggle it back to Beijing. He was caught by Customs and Border Authorities. And the third, Yang King Ye, also a researcher 
here in Boston, this time at Boston University, working on polymer research, not a coincidence. She happens to be active military in China, a lieutenant in the People's Liberation Army, sent here, tasked with finding this kind of material, working on it, and bringing the fruits of her research back to China. And so we thought this sort of trifecta of cases was a great way to try to sensitize the public to this ongoing problem. And it's not just Boston. We obviously have our share of major universities and defense contractors. It's a nationwide problem. And it's taken a while to get the public to see this really is a national security problem. In Iowa, Pioneer is a company which does very advanced research on improving seeds and developing very specialized seeds for agriculture. That's about four or five years ago. But they ended up noticing that there were these three guys from China who were trying to find where their experimental plots were so that they could go out at night and actually dig up some of the brand new experimental seeds to take them back to China. I remember that case. That's right. Getting the next generation of seeds is a huge multi-billion dollar business if you can grow them and then sell them all over the world for agriculture. And it increases productivity so that if you're a country of a billion, 300 million people, you'd like to have the most advanced agriculture in the world, which they don't have. The idea of these three Chinese guys wandering around rural Iowa, and these are folks who are not fluent in English and were not blending in very well, and trying to find these plots, sent alarm bells all over Des Moines, and they promptly had people out there tracking them down and I think locking them up. Yes, they were prosecuted. I remember getting a briefing from the FBI agent who did that case. It was exactly what you described. They stood out somewhat, right? Their English was poor, and three of them just kind of wandered around rural Iowa trying to get their hands on this genetically modified corn. The same thing happened in Kansas with genetically modified rice. There was a case in Tennessee where some Chinese nationals came to the United States and wanted to steal research on the coating for the inside of plastic water bottles that makes them safer for drinking water. So it's interesting that it's not just the theft of military-style technology. It's the theft of important research results that pertain to society and food being a good one, the corn and the rice cases. But it reminds me of something that a friend of mine in the drug development industry was fond of saying, the first pill costs a billion dollars to create, but the second one costs only about five cents. And this is the tactic that the Chinese follow. They'd rather steal the technology, replicate it at a much cheaper cost, and then replace whatever the foreign technology is, like the US technology. So the genetically modified corn probably costs a tremendous amount of money for Monsanto or some other company to come up with. The Chinese steal it bring it home, recreate it for their own purposes. And this has been going on for over a decade. General Clapper, when he was the director of national intelligence, I think testified in 2016 that his estimate was that the Chinese were stealing about $500 billion a year in intellectual property, more than the total U.S. sales to China. And I think it's this kind of stuff where you don't realize how really valuable some of these things become over time. So they look small when you start, and then you look at the out years, and you realize suddenly they just got a stream of revenue that was amazing. How big a problem do you think this is overall? I think this is a huge problem. Only now, and in part because of COVID, becoming clear to a broad swath of the American public that our 
primary international rival is China. You see commentary these days, finally, about how we appear to be engaged in a new Cold War with China. I think that is true. I think it's been true for years, but only the Chinese knew it. Most of the U.S. public was blissfully unaware that we were engaged in a new Cold War with the Chinese. Back 12, 13 years ago, Bob Mueller, when he was the FBI director, was testifying in front of Congress about the risk posed by Chinese front companies stealing U.S. technology. Then during the Obama years, if you remember, there was a lot of press about Chinese hacking of U.S. companies. And now these days that has morphed somewhat into just a wave of Chinese nationals sent here to co-opt Americans and steal American technological know-how. When you talk to the FBI about this, the FBI director, Chris Ray, speaks about it this way. The Chinese is using a whole of society approach where it's not just traditional intelligence agents who come over here and try and steal stuff or co-opt Americans. It's non-traditional collectors, as we call them. It's your everyday citizen coming over here and either out of a feeling of loyalty to China or under coercion makes the effort to steal technology. We have only done one case that I can think of in recent memory where the defendant was literally a Chinese government agent. And that's the Ye case we just did where the woman was a lieutenant in the PLA. All the other ones are just private citizens. And that makes it extremely difficult to police. There's 370,000 Chinese visa holders in the United States. Most of them are here for legitimate reasons, but some of them aren't. Finding them is a problem, and it is a constant drain on the U.S. economy, and it directly benefits our chief global rival. So what do you think we should do about it? Well, I think there are several tough policy decisions to be made. One of the important things to do, I think, is sensitize the public to this problem, and I think you're seeing that happen. Second is, it seems to me that there needs to be greater scrutiny of incoming Chinese immigrants, which is unfortunate to say, but I think unavoidable. It is a bona fide national security problem. I think that more pressure needs to be brought to bear on the Chinese. And I think some of that has happened. So if you look at the phase one trade deal, the administration struck with the Chinese in January, there's a lot of assurances the Chinese were required to make in that deal about policing the theft of intellectual property. Now, whether it actually happens is something else. But these are all moves in the right direction. You need what's called a whole of government approach. And so the State Department needs to do its thing. The Commerce Department, when it comes to export control, needs to do its thing. We need to closely scrutinize foreign investment in U.S. companies and infrastructure. I remember at the Center for Strategic International Studies, when we talked about the China Initiative, the Attorney General gave a speech about Chinese investment in global 5G networks, which I think scared everybody, and appropriately so. But it is the perfect example of how the Chinese are relentlessly insinuating themselves into technological infrastructure that the whole world needs. And so the U.S. needs to wake up to that fact, and I think we are slowly now, and begin to push back. And I think you're seeing that begin to happen. It may not be happening fast enough, and hopefully it's not too late.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking. When we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. When these folks get in trouble, do the Chinese help them at all or do they just wash their hands and walk off? For the most part, we do not see direct influence from the Chinese government in any of these cases. I have seen one instance where we arrested someone in a case in this context and a lawyer materialized from New York who clearly had been either retained or solicited by Chinese authorities. But I've only seen that one time. And so it's interesting. I don't know if behind the scenes, the Chinese government is just washing their hands of these people or what is happening there, but we haven't seen any overt action by the Chinese in these cases. So they just basically steal what they can, relax, and you know, if, if you get lucky, then they take the casualties. And I think what makes it so clever is that 80% of it is legal. So the Chinese can offer money to a U.S. academic to collaborate with a university in China. And what your average U.S. academic does not fully understand is that while in the United States, there is a bright line distinction between public and private, at least in most sectors, in China, there is not. The distinction between public and private is an illusion. So if you are collaborating with the Wuhan University of Technology, Whatever know-how you transfer to that university is immediately available to the Chinese Communist Party. If you collaborate with a seemingly private company in China, any know-how you transfer to that company is immediately available to the Chinese Communist Party. And in fact, under Chinese law, the Communist Party can take for itself any technology a private company cultivates for national security purposes. And so if you said to your average U.S. academic, look, you understand that when you collaborate with the Chinese on cancer research, whatever it is, 
you're collaborating with the Communist Party. You get that, right? Most of them would be surprised to hear it. And that's some of the outreach and sort of sensitization we need to bring to this problem. I think a lot of academics would be horrified to hear it, but it is nonetheless true. So the other side of the coin is, on the one hand, they're trying to get specific knowledge from us. On the other, how do their Confucian Institutes change the campuses? Should we be worried about them? People differ on this, I should say. There are universities that host these Confucius Institutes who insist that they are innocuous. I do not believe that. The Confucius Institutes, in my view, and I think the view of this Senate subcommittee led by Senator Portman, are a concerted effort by the Chinese to create bases of operations on U.S. campuses to influence the conversation about China. And so these Confucius Institutes will, for example, host or finance, teaching, classes, speeches, seminars about China. But every single one of them will toe the party line about Chinese influence in the world. You won't hear about the need for an independent Taiwan. You're not going to hear about Hong Kong. You're not going to hear about Tiananmen Square. And so that is an effort by the Chinese to influence the course of the conversation. The second thing you see although we have not been able to, at least here, successfully develop a case on this yet, is we have indications that Chinese agents, this time literally agents, operate on U.S. campuses in an effort to police speech by Chinese graduate students on those campuses. And so we have seen indications of Chinese agents intimidating Chinese graduate students here doing work who have said something on social media or otherwise publicly that is critical of the Chinese government. This all happens here under our noses because this is an open and free society, unlike, say, China. And I find it extremely concerning. It is the Chinese making use of our own constitutional liberties for their own purposes. Let me ask you about one specific case that's not in your jurisdiction, but it's become moderately famous. And that is the scale of the University of Pennsylvania's taking money from China and not specifying what happened to it. It obviously in part involves Vice President Biden, who now has an institute at Penn, and the Chinese apparently gave University of Pennsylvania a pretty substantial general grant, although because they won't release anything, we don't actually know how much of it went to Biden's institute and how much of it universities using elsewhere or why, but there was apparently a huge jump between what they had been getting and what they got once Biden showed up there. I think the Chinese are pretty brazen in how they make use of the influence that they can achieve just by using sheer dollars. I think they've seen that work here, and I think they see no reason to stop. And I think one of the best cures for that is transparency which is why I love that the Department of Education has dusted off the Higher Education Act provisions. Transparency is tremendous. You see it on a micro level. So if this Harvard professor or other academics we've looked at, you know, when NIH or DOD goes to them and says, have you received money from China? A simple yes is all they need to give if it's in fact true. And then the U.S. government now has a better handle on the Chinese exercising influence through the use of dollars. It's the same thing on a university-wide level. Every university should be forced to be entirely transparent about the funds it has received from China and where those funds are going. And then you can have a real public policy debate about what to do about it. 
Once you know the extent of the influence, then you can make a decision about what to do. So a good example, University of Texas, in light of our cases in this area, polled its faculty and said, are any of you getting money from China? They expected maybe five or six positives, and they got over 100. And the school administration itself was flabbergasted that that high percentage of its own faculty was receiving dollars from China. They didn't even know. This is the kind of information you have to have. Once you have that information, you can have an intelligent debate about whether to limit Chinese influence or not, and that's for the policymakers to decide. But it starts with transparency. Listen, I want to thank you for serving the country and for the work you're doing and for sharing with our listeners what I think is going to be a steadily growing and more and more important story. And you're doing some of the real leading work in this area. I think people will find this to be very informative. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you to my guest, U.S. Attorney Andy Lelling. You can read more about China's investment in U.S. universities on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Slum. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich360. Please email me with your questions at gingrich360.com slash questions. I'll answer them in future episodes. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, Chinese Investment in U.S. Universities, Part 2. How many U.S. universities receive funding from China and the Chinese Communist Party? And what influence does this money have on our higher education system? I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.